0: All right, so we're going to pick up in Hosea chapter five today. Go ahead and turn there if you're not already there, and we'll start with. um, Maybe someone can read for us verses one through seven. Who wants to do that, Uh, Jonathan?
1: Judgment applies to you, for you have been a snare at Newtok, and a net spread out on table. The revolters have gone deep into depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim and, I, and Israel is not hidden from you. For now, O Ephraim, you have played a harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them, for so they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for so they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land.
0: All right, starting verse 1. Any- observe there. Okay, so it says judgment applies to you. Who specifically is being judged here? Yeah, specifically the leaders, right? So priests and house of the king. So he said, you've been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on on Tabor. That would be Mount Tabor. So Mizpah was a town um, in Judah uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Originally, it had been a uh, town where the Moabites lived, and then um, Mount Tabor. I was going to look up here, and you may have in your in your Bible there the uh, location of that. Let's see here. Uh, Let's see here. So it's mentioned in. Zebulon. Let's see here. Yeah, so, but here's the point. Here are people who are supposed to be doing what? Tina? Hosea 5. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, they're supposed to be proclaiming God. Say that one more time God's. Uh, they're supposed to be, uh,
1: supposed to be God's priests, really, as it kind of says here,
0: but. Okay, yeah. So their job was to teach the people the law. The kings were also had an obligation to copy out the law so they knew it and then also teach the people what it said. And instead of teaching people about God, they are leading people into idolatry by their actions and by their failure to teach them God's law. They're teaching them uh, basically all kinds of pagan rituals instead. All right, verse uh, 2. Probably a question of who they're revolting against, right? Probably revolting against God. Yeah, rebellion. Mm -hmm. So what's God's response? Yeah, he's going to chastise all of them. So to the extent that any of them think, I'm beyond God's notice, God can't see me, all those sorts of things, uh, verse 3 makes it clear that they are not hidden from him. Okay? And then verse 3, it talks about Ephraim. It goes back and forth between Ephraim and Israel. Is there a reason for this? No. So Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons, right? Ephraim had the largest portion of territory and had a fairly prominent place early on in Israel's history and uh, was greatly blessed. But then now here, as we look um, in Hosea 5, it's sort of become a, a negative connotation. It's, it's associated with the northern tribes of Israel, but there's a negative connotation because they are, all of them, pretty much wicked. So it goes back and forth between Ephraim and Israel when it's referring to them. Uh, verse 4 is interesting on the idea of repentance. Any thoughts on that? Probably even four, five, and six. Let's look at those together. If it says their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, their pride testifies against them, they stumble in their iniquity, they will go to seek the Lord but will not find him, he is withdrawn from them. What what should we understand is going on here? Yeah. So when he says a spirit of harlotry is within them, it goes back to chapter 4, verse 12. They're consulting idols. They're departing from their God. And so God's saying, you can offer sacrifices to me all day long in Jerusalem or in places that you've picked, which are not the place where I want you to offer sacrifices. But to the extent that you're also offering sacrifices to all these pagan gods, I don't want your sacrifices and you're continuing to stray away from me and then verse 7 is what Yeah, I think there are several references going on here. They're intermarrying with the nations around them. And the new moon, does that refer to like the new moon beast of the other cultures that they Yeah, I think so. A lot of them, uh, like Ishtar was a cult that worshipped moon and fertility and all these sorts of things. And so to the extent that they're going and actually having illegitimate children with pagan priestesses, it is a sign of the larger problem, which is their hearts have departed away from God, And it refers back to the specific picture that God is giving them in Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea. And so God says, look at Hosea and Gomer. She's dealt treacherously. She's supposed to be faithful to her husband. She's wandered off with all these other men. You're supposed to be faithful to your God, but both physically and spiritually, you have joined yourself to pagan peoples, and you have turned away from God in idolatry. Which then, I think, goes to the point of uh, what Paul talks about Uh, Flip over to 1 Corinthians for a second. Um, Let's see here. 1 Corinthians. Hang on a second. Um, The one where it talks about being... Okay, uh, 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So Paul says, Don't be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has Christ, has light with darkness? What harmony is Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. For as just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And don't touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you and be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, um, And then he says, Therefore having these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We tend to see these verses primarily about don't marry unbelievers. And they certainly have reference to that. But the issue with marrying unbelievers is less that... How do I put this? Marrying unbelievers is obviously a problem. But the bigger problem is is the degree to which someone who doesn't believe in God is going to draw your heart away from God. So if we think back to what's going on with Hosea and Gomer, um, what's going on with them is, God said, I, um, I want you to worship me, not false gods. And I don't want you to intermarry with the pagan peoples because they're going to draw you away from me to false gods. And then he gives them an example. Here's a woman who's, abandoning her husband and running off, just like Israel has abandoned God and run off, which has then led to the specific sin of adultery and fornication, all those sorts of things. So we tend to get stuck on the idea of adultery and fornication being the issue, or marrying someone who doesn't believe in God being the primary issue. It's not the primary issue. It is the consequences that it leads to that God's even more concerned about. Because think about... um, I I was talking a long time ago with a lady who said, I think she was Episcopalian and her husband was Catholic and they couldn't agree on where to send their kids, so they sent them to like a, I don't know, I think they sent them to like a non-denominational VBS, which is one of the better options of what they could have picked, right? But what tends to happen is, Here's dad's religion, here's mom's religion, the kids have no religion. Um, because if there's not agreement on those most basic things about what we believe about God, how can there be any unity in what you teach your kids, and how can they have any clarity on what they're supposed to do after God? Now, there are exceptions to this. There, are, you know, Timothy, for example, his father was either absent or pagan in his practice, it seems, and yet his mother and his grandmother taught him faithfully about God, and God's by God's grace he turned out fine. So there are exceptions to that. But generally speaking, if dad and mom, neither of them believe in God, or if one of them is is leading their kids away from God, closing being in church, the kids grow up with at least a warped view, if not a complete rejection of God and who He is. Now, obviously that can happen in for a variety of reasons. So I'm not saying it's a... Huge issue that if you're not both committed to God, then it just it just doesn't work. And so the church at Corinth was tolerating various By that means marry unbelievers. And that's what we see in Hosea as well. Any other thoughts on that little part here? So it's kind of all wrapped up together. If you reject God and go after idols, it's going to lead to practicing idolatry, which is going to lead to all sorts of sins, but all sorts of sins are less the bigger issue than the fact that you departed away from God to begin with. I mean, they're a problem. God doesn't like them, they're evil but violating love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the bigger issue than the specific ways in which you're disobeying God. And so we, I think, have such a narrow focus that we're like, as long as you don't commit adultery, as long as you don't steal, you're good. And God says, I'm calling you to something much higher than that. Love me with every fiber of your being. And that's something that we tend not to aspire to and we certainly don't reach apart from God's help. Um, someone read uh, verses 8 through 12 for us, please. Who could do that? Verses 8 through 12? Here, of, uh, sorry, of Hosea chapter 5, going back to that. Hosea 5, verses 8 through 12. Okay, Grace, thank you. Okay? So, any significance of Gibeah and Ramah and Beth-Avon? Those cities in Benjamin. Anything you remember of, of those? Think back to King Saul. These were cities associated with Saul and his rule as king when the people were at sort of their height of optimism? Just blowing the horn, it reminds me of when the kings were chosen. Okay. Yes, but I think in this case, when he says sound an alarm, it's not kings being chosen, it's more what? Call to war. Call to war, warning, you're being attacked, danger, like that sort of thing. And so, the thing that I was trying to point out as far as mentioning Saul is, here's a place where, it was associated with a time of strength when they were defeating the Philistines and all these kinds of things, and now they're being attacked in their very strength um, now because, by their enemies because they've turned away from God. Because verse 9 says they'll become a desolation in the day of God's rebuke. Okay? What about verse 10? What's the big deal about those who move a boundary?
1: Okay. And it was specifically called out back in, you, know, it something
0: you should not do. Okay. Yeah, all right. Um why was it a big deal to have boundaries? Braden? So okay. And why was it a big deal to farm on someone else's land? I mean, we Braden. Okay? their inheritance from God, if we take it even a little bit further. Okay? So it's their food, their inheritance from God. So one of the things that was particularly wicked about what Ahab did to Naboth was not only the fact that he conspired against him to have him murdered, but he was stealing his inheritance that God had given to his family. So Ahab takes it, and then his family doesn't have it anymore going down the line. And so there is a treachery against God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They violated that, which then led to treachery against their neighbors. Let's steal your property, take advantage of you, charge you usurious interest, like all those sorts of things. And so God is angry with both, and so He's going to punish them. Um, following man's command, any idea what that might refer to? Verse 11. What's that? Well, we think it's the Ten Commandments, but when he says man's command, what what is he probably referring to? Think back to what the priests and kings were being punished for. Yeah, the, the, you know, someone might make the excuse, well, I was just following what the king and the priest told me to do, and they don't have the opportunity to do that because... It's wrong whether the leadership says it's right or not. Okay, uh, and so God's response was: Do we read verse twelve? No. Yeah, okay. Uh, moth and rottenness. What's that? A picture. Why would that be a big deal to them? Our houses are pretty well sealed, but what would a mouth and rottenness have been a concern about them? Eat up your clothes and your food. Yeah, eat up your clothes. Yeah. So. It's interesting, these pictures that God uses if you are going to... uh, We tend to think that God has to use something great and strong and powerful like a huge army to attack his people. (laughs) So he picks this picture of like a moth coming in and eating all your stuff and then you go and look and then it's all gone. And so he's basically saying, I'm going to undermine your efforts at every turn. Someone read verses 13 through 15. Evan? Okay. So, what is Israel's response to God attacking them and undermining their efforts?
1: Ben? They went through the other countries, like Syria, to try to find help.
0: Okay. Yeah. What was foolish about that? Well, they were their enemies, and what else? Evan? So they had no power to help them ultimately, yeah, they would take them over later on. Yeah. i trying to think of a good example of this. Um, maybe this would be a good example. If you had COVID, would you go to someone who had pneumonia? and say, hey, can you help me get better from this? No, because then you're going to catch something else and be worse off than you were before, right? Um, if, If your house is falling down because it got flooded or something, would you go to someone else right next door whose house also got flooded and said, hey, can you come fix my house? No, because they are having the same problem. I think it's even intensified because the nations around them were the reason that Israel, like their consorting with the nations, was the reason that God was punishing them. So their response of saying, well, let's do that more, is just completely absurd and ridiculous. But in our sin, we are blinded to the the cause of our sin. We say, uh, you know, so mm, 50 years ago, Uh, not being married and living together was seen as a bad thing and so people's response was not to say we should stop living together it was to say we should get people to stop seeing it as a bad thing. Today the popular thing is stuff like homosexuality and all that kind of thing and their solution is not to say we should stop living this way it's we should make everybody stop telling us it's a bad thing. If we are living in greed and pride and someone calls us out on it, our solution is not to say we should stop living in greed and pride. It's to say, let's make the person go away that's making us feel badly about whatever it is that we're doing. And so the response of our sinful hearts is to try to silence the voice that's telling us what we're doing is wrong rather than to stop doing the wrong that's the reason for the rebuke. And uh, until we understand that, we're going to continue to be frustrated because it's never going to solve the problem. Norma? Yeah. So I think when he says, Moth the Ephraim, rottenness, saw his sickness, saw his wound, Ephraim is oppressed and crushed, he's basically saying, um, disaster is happening to your nation and you want to say the reason is that we need to have better foreign relations or disaster is happening to your land and you want to say the reason is I mean in our day it would be well the reason that we're having disasters in our country is only and primarily because of climate change as opposed to the reason that we're having wars and disasters and disunity and chaos is because people's hearts have turned away from God. Now, people say, well, but if God was really, if it was really some kind of judgment of God, it wouldn't happen to people that follow God. And the reality is there were people that followed God in the nations of Israel and Judah who still experienced God's judgment to a greater or lesser degree as God judged the entirety of the nation. Can God be very specific about the judgment? Absolutely. But in many cases, it is God's people who are righteous who are pleading for God while everyone else is going their own way and that stays God's judgment or or um, reduces its effect for a time. Think about Hezekiah. God says, I'm not going to stop the judgment, but I'm going to wait a few generations. Think about um, others who are pleading for God in the midst of his judgment. Sometimes God turns aside. Sometimes God delays. Sometimes God reduces the scope of it. But... The examples where, like in the land of Egypt, the Israelites are untouched and the pagan peoples are devastated, there's only a handful of instances of that in the Bible and a lot more in which God's people are suffering alongside the wicked as God punishes their nation for its disobedience. And um, I think that's important to think about when it comes to our concept of something like the tribulation. I believe that God is going to take his church out of the world before the tribulation because of all the emphasis on being delivered from final wrath. And the tribulation and the final battle at the end of um, the millennium are the instances in which God pours out his wrath on the world. So I don't think the church will be here for that. That being said, I think the church can and does go through intense periods of persecution and judgment and devastation as they serve God in the midst of a wicked world. And so sometimes I think we've said, well, nothing bad should happen to me because God's not going to let me experience his final wrath. And if the people who say the rapture happens after the tribulation are right, what it means is God's going to sustain you through it. But even if they're wrong and we're correct that the, the the rapture happens first, the point is we're still going to have difficulties to face before Jesus delivers his church. And to the extent that we think that the judgment that falls from God in the form of natural disasters and wars and disease and all those sorts of things are just accidents, then we're forgetting the fact that God controls all the circumstances of the world and he is using these things to arrest people's attention. And sometimes people listen and sometimes people don't. There were a lot of people who said, oh, the problem, the reason that COVID happened was so that we could see some of the dangers of the interconnectedness of the world economy or because we weren't regulating things well enough at these places, instead of saying, a lot of us really hate God. Why would we think God would be happy with us and leave us healthy and happy and going about our our business blissfully unaware of any need to repent? It intensifies in verse 14. Well, one last thing about 13. Not only are the people unable to help, but also the source of the problem. If God is as great as the Bible describes him to be, it is utter foolishness to go to some other human for something that only God can deal with. And so in verse 14, it says, God is like a lion who's going to destroy them and God says, I'm going to abandon you until you repent, then the path forward is pretty clear. Here's what you're supposed to do. You need to repent. But let's read uh, 6, 1 through 3. Who'd like to read that for us? 6, 1 through 3. Hosea 6, 1 to 3. Ben, thank you.
1: He has wounded us, but He will make us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Is going forth to those certain of the dawn. and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain,
0: watering the earth. All right. So what do we have? Indicated here. Verse 1 sounds promising, right? Okay. God is the one who can heal them. Verse 2 is fascinating because it sounds like something else we might encounter later on in the Bible. Yeah, so there's an anticipation of the concept of on the third day that I don't think I noticed before when I would have read through um, Hosea. And uh, I don't know that they necessarily understood all of what was anticipated in that, but it is interesting how various things that the prophet said anticipate things that were true in Jesus' words. What's the contrast, just thinking about that for a minute, what's the contrast between Jesus being raised on the third day and these people's expectation of being raised on the third day? What's true of Jesus in the way that he lived and thought, and what was going on in his heart? Sinless, righteous one. Yeah, obeyed his father in all respects. What's true of the people of Israel at this point? They were being raised from sin. <laughs> well, right, they're complete Their lives are completely characterized by sin. So it's a little bit optimistic to say we've been committing these terrible sins about God. Oh, if we just say we're sorry, God'll be God'll be good with it. No. Does God forgive? Absolutely. But mm, I think they're still missing the point. Verse three, what's sort of their idea here?
1: Kind
0: of like a slow process, like plants growing. Okay. Uh, blessing, right? Yeah. God's blessing is going to return to us. If we can, and but here's here's the problem, and uh, we'll see this in the next few verses. If you come to God, well, I don't know. Let's say that you have a problem with always being late to everything, and you go to your friends or family and you're like, I'm going to always be on time going forward. And then you keep being late to everything. How sincere are they going to take your words? Not very, right? We can't fool God and come to Him and say, Oh, let's return to God, and oh, God's going to bless us if we're not actually turning back to him. And this is the problem. So many times when we're stuck in patterns of sin, we say, I'm tired of the consequences, but I don't want to give up the sin, so if I just say the right thing, maybe God will sort of overlook it and not really look at my heart and say that I don't really mean it, and then I'll be blessed again. Because we're not as concerned about our relationship with God as we are about the consequences versus the blessing that we want to receive from him. But if you look at verses 4 through Look at verses 4 through 6. Who wants to read that for us? Verses 4 through 6. Yeah, Louise, thank you. So, what does verse 4 say is the problem? Doesn't commit? What did you say, Evan? Yeah. How many of you have ever said, I'm going to exercise every day? (laughs) Or, uh, I think here's this one food that I think I probably shouldn't eat, so I'm never going to eat it again. How long does that last? Very shortly. Very shortly. Now, we can argue all day long about, you know... I think probably there's more wisdom in doing things in moderation than there is in saying I'll never ever do this thing again just because most of us don't have the strength of willpower to commit to things like that when it comes to diet and exercise. And some exercise is better than no exercise and eating less junk food is better than never eating, uh, than eating it all the time. But when it comes to spiritual things, first of all, it's not about our willpower. And second of all, God does expect a lifelong commitment to following him, not, I got in trouble, so I'm going to go over here and I'm going to act like I'm going to obey so that I stop getting consequences and start getting blessings and then I'm going to creep back toward doing the evil thing again. How many of you experienced that in your struggle with sin? What sorts of lies do we believe when it comes to sin that makes us willing to behave in this way? Evan? It's not as bad as... Yeah, we compare ourselves to someone else. Okay, what else? A major sin. Not a major sin. It's only gossip. It's only lying. It's not like I went out and killed somebody. Doesn't affect anybody else because it's all in my head and heart. Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to it this once, but then I'll be done, right? Um, Sometimes people need help, but they don't want to talk about God. Okay. Yeah, so there's a degree of, of saying, well, I'm just going to fix this all by myself, right? And so to the extent that it's not something of our willpower and not something that we're supposed to just uh, uh, do all on our own, we often do need help to overcome certain sins, but in, in this case, just... Mm, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I think there's the reality that we tend not to pray and ask God for His help about sins that we love because we don't actually want to stop doing them. They didn't want to really give up their idolatry. They wanted to keep going through outward motions of not, they wanted to go through outward motions of stopping their idolatry for a little while because they had this idea that they could somehow trick God. Or like Jonah, that they could somehow run away from God. But here's the thing with Jonah. When the pagan sailors on the boat ask him what God he serves, what does he say? The God who is everywhere. So why are you trying to run away from him? People of, Judah, of Israel and Judah, why do you think that God's not going to see through your false motives when you stop doing it for two minutes and then like, okay, God bless me. But we often love a particular sin and we want to leave the pathway open to going back to it. And, um, I mean, the biblical imagery is, um, mm, so I was out walking yesterday and we saw some snakes. They weren't poisonous snakes, they were garter snakes. But if they had been poisonous snakes, some of them have really fascinating patterns of scales and they're, they're intriguing in the way that they move, all that sort of thing. So if you picked up one of those snakes and you brought it home and you're like, well, I I, I think it's really attractive to me. I really like it. Some of you are like, I would never touch a snake, but, but bear with me in the illustration. Um, I probably won't get bit by the snake. Um, It's not as dangerous as everyone says. I can take precautions. I can have some anti-venom ready to go. I can uh, wear gloves. I can do this or that. If I take precautions mm, to cover up the sin, to... Uh, only indulge in the sin every so often, then I'll be safe. And what ends up happening is we get so accustomed to sin that we forget how dangerous that it is and we get bit by it and poisoned by it. And, I mean, Romans would take it a step further and say it kills us as the law reveals it to us and we say I still don't want to turn from it. And God is saying to the people of Israel, and to a lesser extent the people of Judah, I am going to make your lives miserable until you completely abandon the idea of loving this sin. And that's the thing that I think should encourage us and terrify us. God is willing to take us to the point of death and strip everything out of our lives if that is what is necessary so that our hearts love him fully. Encouraging because God loves us that much and terrifying if we're harboring sin in our hearts because the entirety of our lives can fall apart around us if we keep hanging on to that sin. Your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. That, That verse should be very convicting to us. And in response to verse 2, he will revive us after two days. Verse 5, he says, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. The judgments on you are like the light or the lightning that goes forth. God says, hey, I can see through your schemes. You expect restoration and blessing, and my words condemn you. You stand condemned by what I have said because you know in your hearts you don't mean any of this turning back to me that you are professing. In verse 6, God says, I do not care. Let's put it in modern terms. I don't care how many times you read your Bible. I don't care how many sermons you've listened to. I don't care how good everybody around you thinks that you are. If you do not love me from the heart, none of that matters. Think about Saul. God said, kill off all of these pagan people in this one city and get rid of all their animals. Saul says, "Hmm, it might be fun to toy with their leader and like torture him a little bit before we kill him. And you know what? God would probably actually be happy if we kept some of the animals to sacrifice cuz God likes sacrifices." Samuel's words to Saul was were basically this here. I want loyalty instead of sacrifice. I want you to obey and to love me with all of who you are far more than I want you to do the outward rituals of conforming to what I've required you to do, whether that be in their day, the offering of sacrifices, whether that be in our day, the gathering, the, the, the one another commands. There could be theoretically a scenario in which outwardly you are generous and kind to meet people's needs and come alongside them and help them, and you're faithful doing all these activities at church, and in your heart you do not love God. We say, well, are you sure about that? Well, I mean the passage in Matthew where Jesus says all these people who say, didn't we do all these things for you, God? And he says, I never knew you. So to the extent that we can deceive ourselves and think that doing activities for God is the same as loving and having a relationship with God, that should be a terrifying position to be in. And so, if your pattern of response to sin is set it aside for a day, go back to it, set it aside for a day, go back to it, Set it aside for a day, go back to it. That should be a really scary pattern that you if you uh, can see it. Last few verses, like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant and dealt treacherously. They're a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints, a band of priests, murder on the way to Shechem, they've committed crime in the house of Israel. I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. We'll get into more of this in chapter 7. But The basic idea is, following the pattern of Adam who first disobeyed God, you continue to disobey God. Murder, adultery, all of these evil thoughts and practices. God sees them. God knows their God is going to judge them for it until there is actually true repentance, not just a pretense of, of repentance. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to look at these truths. We pray that they would convict our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.